uh, the topic of our conference, the articulation between nature and grace, is obviously the key problem in Christian wisdom and concern a wide range of areas. The model we adopt of the relationship between nature and grace determines our understanding, for instance, of the relationship between political society and the church, or in the matrimony between human love and charity, or between reason and faith, and hence, on the epistemological level between philosophy as natural wisdom and Christian theology, understood as a scientific and sapiential approach to understanding faith. Within this framework, and from a Thomistic point of view, I aim to assess a relationship between philosophical theology says the philosophical and essentially metaphysical discussion on God and the Christian theology as the mystery of the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. Contemporary Thomism, we may say, is torn between two opposing tendencies or perhaps, should I say, temptations. On the one hand, the heirs of Leo Thurston's Neo-Thomism strongly emphasizes the importance of a Thomistic philosophy that is strictly independent of Christian theology. By Leonine Thomism, I mean the form of Thomism set up by Pope Leo XIII that established itself at the end of the 19th century and dominated until the middle of the 20th century. It's a fact that the encyclical Eterni Patris show little interest in theology. Its objective is rather the establishment to modern, uh, uh, the establishment of a Thomistic Christian philosophy that will provide a credible alternative to modern philosophical schools of thought that were believed to be largely responsible for dechristianization. The apostles of Leonine Thomism apply themselves accordingly and with undeniable success to the reconstitution of a complete Thomistic philosophy that was independent of theology. And for this, they base themselves on elements drawn from the corpus of Thomas' works and subsequent Thomistic tradition. The aim was to debate with modern thinkers on an equal footing on the basis of the natural reason common to all mankind. The risk they run was that of unconsciously being drawn into the epistemological territory of the adversary while forgetting the specifically Christian manner of doing philosophy in the light of the faith. When it came to discussing God, they were satisfied accordingly to juxtapose a philosophical approach, natural theology, and a theological approach, which of course do not contradict each other, 
but develop independently each on its own line. This temptation, which I call separatist, nowadays seems largely eclipsed by the opposite temptation, namely that of the so-called Augustinian Thomism, represented, for example, by the adherent of the radical orthodoxy movement. They emphasize the unquestionably legitimate re-theologization of Thomism, characteristic of recent decades, to the point of denying the opportuneness and even the possibility of Thomist autonomous philosophy. Numerous authors, starting with Henri de Lubac, have seen the epistemological autonomy of philosophy already present in Aquinas as a ruse of modern thought to subvert the edifice of authentic Christian wisdom. Thomist or neo-Thomist insistence on the autonomy of nature, even hypothesis of pure nature, is viewed as a wooden horse of Troy that favored the secularization of modern thought and culture. If this is true, salvation is to be found in the abandonment of this illusion. We must return to a system of knowledge in which the intellectus fidei absorbs philosophy. The only legitimate discussion of God is theological, that is Trinitarian and Christological. There is no room for natural philosophy, natural theology. It appears to me that the right balance here, as in the field of Christology, is to be found in union while avoiding confusion. We must reject monophysitism, which absorbed Christ's humanity into his divinity, nature into grace, and philosophy into theology. But we must equally reject Nestorianism, which just opposes Christ's humanity and divinity, nature and grace, philosophy and theology. I shall attempt to justify this standpoint by developing three arguments. In the first place, for St. Thomas Aquinas, there is a coherence and a relative autonomy of the natural order that justify the real possibility of a philosophical theology formally distinct from the reflection of the intellectus fidei on the mystery of God. In the second place, we must hold against the separatist tendency and according to the principles that grace cures and perfects nature, that philosophical theology only reaches its full development in its proper order to the extent that the metaphysician nourishes vital contact with the face. In the third place, we must hold against the supernaturalist temptation that the intellectus fidei of the mystery of God as one and a trinity only reaches its full development by assuming in, in its own light the results of the autonomous philosophical theology. So my first point is, what is philosophical theology? 
Philosophical theology, that is philosophical reasoning about God, is first an unquestionable historical and cultural fact. The pagan philosophers in ancient times developed a wealth of metaphysical thought about the divinity, the first principle. Far from rejecting this thought in its entirety, the fathers of the church at the same time recognize a degree of truth in it, emphasize its limitation, and drew on it for their own theological thought. St. Thomas clearly defined the epistemological nature of philosophical theology. It is a scientific form taken on by the natural knowledge of God, the possibility of which is attested by sacred scripture and which was even recognized as a dogma by the church at the Vatican Council. It is the end of metaphysics, meaning that it is both the final part which supposes all the previous reflection and the exquisite coronation, which guides the whole process of philosophical research. At the time of Aquinas, there were two major contradictory interpretations of how to understand being as being, the object of metaphysics, or first science, also known as divine science. Does it mean being in general and scomune, that is to say the so-called property of being which all things have in common? Or does it mean the highest kind of being, namely the separated substances in general and God in particular? For the former group whose view derives from Avicenna, being as being means the being common to all things. Metaphysics is thus ontology in the first place, thus a discussion of being and its properties. For the latter group, whose view derives from Averroes, being as being is to be identified with the highest being, namely God. In this case, metaphysics is essentially theology. And since, according to Aristotelian epistemology, a science cannot demonstrate the existence of its own object, the view was taken that it was a task of physics to demonstrate the existence of God as prime mover, and that metaphysics then took over for the study of the nature of God. This meant claiming for philosophy a monopoly of authentic study of God and setting aside as useless and uncertain any discussion of God in himself that claimed to be founded on the direct revelation of God by God himself. Philosophy suffices. Aquinas, in the famous prologue to his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, is rather inclined to take the side of a vision. He explains that it is the task of a single science, namely metaphysics, to study being as common to all things and scomune, and separated substances, especially God. However, 
common being and God do not fall under metaphysics in the same way. The only direct object of metaphysics, the properties, divisions, and cause of which the metaphysician seeks to establish, is common being. However, the metaphysical study of common being take on the form of an analysis or resolution that discovers its causes or principles, immanent or external. But the, this resolution brings out the fact that from various points of view, the being of this world cannot fully account for themselves and that the transcendent cause of their being is required, which is, in final analysis, God, subsistent being itself. God is accordingly not the subject of metaphysics, is still less a part of its subject, since a divine being is not a part of esse commune. God is the cause of the subject of metaphysics. It is as such that he enters metaphysics, since the same science studies directly a given object and indirectly the causes of this object. In this sense, God is the end of metaphysics. The study of the ens commune achieves its completion only in the consideration of God, of cause, or final explanation of the being of things. To the extent that it treats of God in this way, metaphysics can be called a divine science or philosophical theology. In this view, philosophy does not claim to say the last word about God. It reaches God only as a cause of a creation in which God has not exhausted itself. So it leaves plenty of room for another science of God based on God's own communication about himself, as the first text in your handout, uh, in the commentary on Boethius. Theology or the divine science is of two kinds. The one considers divine realities not as subject of the science, but as principle of the subject. This is a theology pursued by the philosophers, also referred to as metaphysics. The author considers divine things in themselves as subject of the science. This is a theology transmitted in sacred scripture. I come to my second point. The philosophical theology needs to be vitally open to the faith. Since grace does not destroy nature, theology as scientific form of intellectus fidei does not invalidate philosophical theology. On the contrary, it cures it and brings it to its completion in its own philosophical order. According to a principle that Maritain had advanced in the debate about Christian philosophy, it is necessary to, I quote Maritain, it is necessary to distinguish the nature of philosophy or what it is in itself from the condition of in which it is found in reality, historically, in the human subject, and which is related to the condition of its existence and the way of 
and the way it is concretely exercised. The nature or essence of a thing is an intelligible structure determined an invariable type. If one changes the slightest constituent or essential part of it, one destroys it, since essences are like numbers. If an apparent human being lacked animal nature or rationality, he might be an angel or a donkey, but certainly no more a human being. The same applies for philosophy. If we eliminate the idea of a rational process setting out from obvious premises drawn from human experience and reaching a certain conclusion by means of demonstration, we are no longer talking about philosophy. But as we know, the essence is an abstraction. There are only concrete human beings uh, who realize the essence of man. This is also the situation in regard to philosophy. Accordingly, if one considers not the essence of philosophy, but philosophy as it is practiced, not by an hypothetical philosopher in himself, but by a real existing philosopher, that is to say, a person belonging in heart and soul to a given spiritual culture and tradition, it's obvious that the approach of the philosopher to the Christian faith plays a determining role in the formation of his philosophical thought. As Etienne Gilson writes, quote, for a philosophy to deserve truly the title of Christian philosophy, the supernatural must descend as a constitutive element, not into its texture, which would be contradictory, but into the work of its constitution. Now, according to Maritain, Christian faith, without in any way substituting itself for philosophical reasoning as such, exercises a twofold influence on the philosopher. On the one hand, it draws his attention to truths that belong by right to the domain of philosophical rationality, but which a philosophy exercised in a non-Christian atmosphere does not always recognize explicitly and without warping them. The example is often given of creation. The idea that all beings depend radically on the first cause of being is not inaccessible to reason. It is even the cornerstone and unifying principle of any metaphysics. But historically, it was not until biblical revelation become, became known that philosophy took possession of its property. Well, today we must take into account the criticism that certain Neoplatonic philosophers, such as Proclus, had arrived by a different path than faith in the idea of a radical causality of the first principle. Nevertheless, the modalities of creation, a free creation motivated by love, remained hidden for them. 
The same holds true in the field of ethics in regard to the tenets of natural law, which are accessible to reason, but have been fully manifested only in the culture determined by faith. So philosophy is in depth to the faith for objective contributions. But on the other hand, the faith subjectively comforts the philosopher in his search for the truth. It is true that sin does not destroy the capacities of human intelligence, but it makes it more difficult to exercise them and makes them less reliable. reliable. Searching for truth is not in the first place a question of intellectual technique, but rather a spiritual effort which involves existentially the person as a whole. The grace of Christ, which gradually cures the wounds of sin and rectifies the patience, restores the possibility of a purified exercise of the intellectual life. It does not make a Christian more intelligent than a non-believer, but places a Christian in a better position for seeking and finding the truth. Such purification of the intelligence as the heart plays a decisive role in a field like philosophical theology, which requires a certain spiritual affinity with the reality being studied, namely God. Indeed, philosophical theology is always threatened by the scene of idolatry, understood not as a cult of charms, but as a propensity of sinful man to create a God in his own image and likeness. The history of Western South gives an almost experimental proof in the form of deism, a typical example of a philosophical theology, which by shutting itself off to the face, destroys itself as a philosophy. From the end of the Middle Ages, the epistemological status of philosophical theology changes due to the drama of the separation of faith and reason, as Fides et Ratio calls it. Since Christian theology, from the end of the 13th century, so fit to distance itself from philosophy, the latter set itself up not only as an autonomous discipline, which was a legitimate development, but also as a separated science, even a counter-theology, an alternative to theology. Philosophical theology then presents itself as natural theology to distinguish it from and even to oppose supernatural theology. And with the coming of the European crisis in the 16th century, the natural theology was unexpectedly used for political and cultural purposes. The reform was fatal for what was until then the basis of the unity of Christian society, namely a single supernatural faith but since to live together in a more or less peaceful way, some doctrinal and moral consensus is required, 
It was henceforth sought no more above, namely in the supernatural order of the revealed face, but below, that is to say, in the lowest common denominator of all religious denominations. Natural theology in the theoretical order, like natural law in the moral order, were then entrusted with the task of ensuring a minimal religious and moral basis, independent of individual denominations and even of any reference to faith at all. This way was not, the way was not open for days. It is not worth seeing that as soon as the concrete exercise of natural theology is withdrawn from the concrete influence of theological life, it turns in on itself. It gradually loses the senses of transcendence and mystery maintained by supernatural faith and it drifts towards deism, which substitutes the God of reason closing in, close in on itself for the God of faith and reason open to faith. In fact, the promoters of deism are less interested in God himself than in man speaking about God, than in the condition for speaking about God. As Etienne Gilson writes to a friend, we care less about the truth than about the way by which we reach the truth. More decisive than the truth itself is a question of the way in which truth is reached, either by the individual reasoning on his own or by historical revelation transmitted by a tradition or Tradition is an impure and suspect phenomenon in the age of modern reason. The question of subjective certainty from then on outweighs the question of the objective truth. As Cardinal Cotier wrote, it's a, it's a text in your handout, the deism of the Enlightenment which is an expression of modern rationalism, relied on the superiority of the mode of knowing of the natural knowledge of God to reject knowledge of God, infinitely superior, received through revelation. Says the claim of the self-sufficiency of the purely natural knowledge of God has prevailed over primary intention to the truth itself. It's better to live in a hovel of which one is the outright owner, so the reasoning goes, rather than lodge in the sumptuous palace with the status of a guest. In any event, the god of natural theology, as presented by Dyson, is not the god of Catholic, nor the god of Protestant, is a great watchmaker whose function is to guarantee the coherence of scientific system, as well as of the socio-political order. The structure of knowledge is then reorganized. Theology as understanding of the faith is marginalized. Even theology is expelled from the world of rationality. 
in favor of natural theology, which first takes over the mortal romance before itself disappearing and making room for religious science. One of the dramas of modern Christian thought is to have consented, doubtless unconsciously, but due to an inept apologetic perspective, to this new organization of knowledge, which nonetheless potentially contain its own death sentence. Not everyone understood immediately that the god of day's natural theology was not a neutral god, I mean a true but as yet indeterminate approximation to the God revealing Christ. But the God of this natural theology is a downright idol who competed with the living God because through the God of deism, human reason, in fact, adores itself. Blaise Pascal came closer to the truth when he observed that, I quote, deism was almost as remote from Christian religion as atheism, which is completely opposed to it. Indeed, in the intrinsic logic of ideas, and likewise in cultural history of Western uh, history, deism represents a transition towards atheism, as Charles Taylor emphasizes in his masterly work, The Secular Age. Now, the idea that nature deforms itself when it closes itself to the supernatural is at the heart of Thomas' analysis of the scene of angels. It therefore seems illuminating to apply this analysis analogically to cultural history. As is well known, an angel, according to Aquinas, is a creature whose nature is perfect in his order from the moment of his creation. However, it's characteristic of nature, perhaps not to be ordered of itself to the supernatural, but at least to be available, to be rise to the supernatural. So it follows that the refusal of the supernatural cannot leave nature intact, but injures it. Now some angels, through pride, through love of their own natural excellence, prefer to keep to what they master perfectly, rather than respond to the divine call to put out into the deep, that is to say, to let go of their destiny in order to receive from another, from God, the meaning and accomplishment of it through the faith. There is therefore something devilish in the naturalism that promotes an accomplishment of man in pure immanence to the extent that one claims it as a virtue, a kind of modesty, to refuse the invitation of the supernatural. One claims to be man and nothing more than man, while forgetting that precisely to be fully a man 
it is necessary to aim higher. In any event, the new structuring of knowledge had a perverse effect on Catholic theology itself. People came to accept the separation of philosophy and theology on the basis of a single determining factor, the accessibility or non-accessibility to reason of the object envisaged. And the terrible misunderstandings that led to the limitation of theology to the study of the pure supernatural, and which as a result led, for instance, to considering the Deo Uno, that is to say, question 226 of the Prima Pass of the Summa, not as a treatise of theology, but, but as a philosophical treatise preliminary to theology, which was believed to start only with the study of Trinity. But this is not a position of Aquinas. It is rather the position of Descartes, who state in his dedication to the meditations, quote, I have always believed that these two questions, God and the soul, are the main ones of those that should be demonstrated by philosophical rather by theological argument. I go to my third point. The intellectus fidei needs a philosophical theology. A philosophical theology gains through keeping lively contact with faith. On the other hand, intellectus fidei cannot do without philosophical theology, as the encyclical Fides et Ratio recalls strongly. However, Many fear to introduce in Christian theology a philosophical pre-understanding of God, for instance, as pure act or ipsumese subsistence, which would make people lose sight of the specific nature of the God of Jesus Christ. A full reply to this objection will be lengthy, and I will, I will restrict myself to two general observations. Firstly, the God of philosophical theology is not the God of days. It is not a competitor of the Christian God, but it is this Christian God considered still from afar and as open to further determination coming from God's self-revelation. For instance, the God of philosophical theology is already a wise and omnipotent God. But faith teaches us that his wisdom and omnipotence show themselves parad paradoxically in the folly and the weakness of the cross. This is not a dialectical opposition, as if the Christian God were re revealed only by his opposition to the God of philosophy but it is an internal expansion of the analogical notion of wisdom or power. Which brings me to the second observation. Catholicism has never accepted the dialectical opposition between theologia crucis and theology of creation. The God of Jesus Christ 
is not a different God from the God who manifests himself in creation as the first cause of being. But nowadays, the Gnostic temptation to separate the God of faith in Jesus Christ from the God of metaphysics seems to be very strong. Under the pretext of avoiding the pitfall of ontotheology, which reduced God to the function of principle of metaphysic or moral order, the idea is put forward of a foreign God, a God who has no more connection with the reality of being, that is reality to cool. Accepting this vision of things amounts to consenting to the victory of modern immanentism, which pushes God to the margins of the realm. But on the contrary, to maintain the dialogue between faith and metaphysics means that the God spoken of by the believer and the theologian is a God who has something to do with being. In other words, a real God, since there is no reality outside being. But for metaphysics to be the genuine interlocutor of Christian theology, it must remain genuine philosophy. No doubt that Christian faith as such can promote a deepening of metaphysics, for instance, in the question of creation. But in that case, the contributions of faith must be taken up and justified at a properly philosophical level. Thus, it's necessary to avoid a theological overdetermination of metaphysics. I mean, the projection onto the object of metaphysics of specifically theological categories, as is sometimes the case with certain Trinitarian ontologies that seek to sink all beings on the model of the divine person as subsistent relations. The risk is the risk of transforming the interlocutor into a mere mirror. In conclusion, the progress of the knowledge of God, who is the finality of all intellectual life, requires a dialogue and a cooperation between a philosophical theology open to the faith and an intellectus fidei open to metaphysical reason. Thank you for your patience.